Hi, I'm Nora with the Elucidations podcast. In this episode of Elucidations, we sit down with Nick Kozelik to discuss the importance of self-consciousness, which is knowing you're in a state by being in it. And we also discuss one solution to the infinite regress of knowing how you know something. Sometimes it seems like a good thing to know everything about yourself, but sometimes it seems like knowing everything about yourself can lead you to be overly self-conscious. Like, for example, if you're speaking in front of people and you suddenly don't know what to do with your hands. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman. I'm Nora Bradford. With us today is Nick Kozalek, lecturer in philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis. And he's here to discuss self-consciousness. I also want to recommend that you check out our earlier episode that we did with Nick, episode 96 on the role of belief in reasoning. It's a real treat. Nick Kozalek, welcome back to Elucidations. Thanks, Matt. So self-consciousness is a topic you will find all over the place if you crack open random philosophy books. And yet it's also a topic that I think doesn't always occur to people as something that's that important. One thing you hear in like everyday situations is stuff like you got to get over your self-consciousness. So if I have a friend who's you know going to go tap dance in front of a bunch of people, maybe I'll try to tell my friend, don't be self-conscious about it. Just do it the way you do it in front of me. Don't think about all those people watching. So I feel like ordinarily we think of being self-conscious as something like an impulse to fight that you have to like get over. Is that at all related to what philosophers who work on self-consciousness work on? I think it ultimately is. But in a way, it's good to start by reminding yourself that, you know, in that way of talking about self-consciousness, it seems like, as you said, a kind of bad thing, something you want to get over. But in other cases, it's a good thing. So self-consciousness is also often connected with self-knowledge. And we do think of knowing things about yourself as being a good thing. And so would we say that self-consciousness in the normal sense that we use it, saying don't be too self-conscious, actually means don't have too much self-knowledge? So be a little bit sort of in the dark about what you actually are doing or what you're, how you're operating in the world? Yeah, that might be true. And so if you think about it that way, then the thought is that there are at least times in which having too much self-knowledge can be debilitating in some way. Um, I always think about this in terms of like when you're talking in front of a large group of people, you suddenly find you know this thing that you never find in the rest of your life, which is you can't figure out what to do with your hands. And suddenly you're like very aware of the fact that you have hands and that you have to make a decision about where to put them and you don't know what to do. Right, because normally it's just automatic. You you know your hands go wherever they naturally go, and you don't even think about it. But once you have to think about it, it, it like becomes a problem that you have to solve suddenly or something. Yeah. Although now I'm thinking like maybe we should start paying attention. To, like think back on what you were doing with your hands when you were talking with your friends at dinner or something, and try to figure out what it was that you were doing, and then try to do that when you're say teaching a class. Hmm. And this would be using self consciousness to figure out how to do better in these kinds of situations in which we ordinarily think about self-consciousness as being a bad thing. Hmm. Another thing that uh, kind of fascinates me is that in this sort of everyday use of the word self-conscious, it often goes with the verb feel. So like 
I don't like hanging out with Arthur. He makes me feel self-conscious. But based on what we've said so far, that seems a little odd because if self-consciousness is having like self-knowledge, like what am I saying? Am I saying that I feel like I have self-knowledge? Like that's a feeling? I I, I guess I've just managed to get myself a little puzzled here. Yeah, so I think one thing about a lot of these kinds of cases where self-conscious, being self-conscious seems like in some way a bad thing or something to be avoided is that it often involves a special kind of awareness of your own bodily existence that you don't normally have. Uh, And so I think one place this comes out really clearly is if you, like, overhear people talking about you in the third person. They, like, you know, they're using your name in this way that you normally don't hear your, your name used. And you suddenly then feel like an object in the world. And you kind of, it's just like this rare moment where you're like, oh, I'm just another person to like be talked about by people, just like an object of their curiosity and fun and the rest of it. And that's like kind of a horrible feeling because in your normal life, you sort of feel like you're the special one. Or maybe I'm like a window through which something is viewing the world or something like, you know, first personal experience is strange in that way. Yeah. And so when you become aware of yourself in this third personal way, because people are talking about you or, you know, you listen to yourself on a podcast or you watch yourself on video, it's really awful. And I think part of it is that you see yourself as just another person in this way that, that others do. And being aware of this in the moment is itself kind of strange because you realize you're, you know, people are reading all kinds of things off of what you're doing that you don't think of as like things you're normally conveying. And then you, you feel like alienated from yourself and like you're, you know, the thing in the world that is you to everyone else is not what you normally think of as you. That's really interesting because I know that you mentioned that you practice yoga and a lot of sort of meditation and things like that have to do with thinking of yourself in the third person. And that's sort of seen as like a really healthy thing, even though in normal daily life, that's like a very uncomfortable thing to do. So would you say that like, would you put a normative claim on that? Like being more self-conscious is actually a good thing. Yeah, this is really interesting. I hadn't thought about this, like, normative dimension of this. I mean, at least thinking about it just for the first time right now, I'm inclined to say there is something good about this kind of becoming self-conscious of yourself as, you know, a bodily person amongst others. Like, that's really healthy uh, and kind of fights against our natural narcissism in a way, but I hadn't made the connection to doing yoga or anything like that. I think this is why so many philosophers really feel liberated by um, getting serious about some form of physical activity, exercise, hiking, climbing, rowing, I don't know, yeah, getting back in touch with your body uh, as a way of reminding yourself that you are actually in a world, you're not uh, just a window. Yeah, I, although I think of that as like getting out of your head, and so that's not so much like coming to a new Maybe it is a kind of self-consciousness in a different way, but it seems different from the kind of thing where you become conscious of yourself as an object to others in this way that's, I think, kind of alienating potentially. Whereas like like physical activity, you know, like climbing or running or whatever it is, you do get absorbed in that and in a way become like deeply unself-conscious in a lot of cases. So it seems like the type of self-consciousness we've been talking about might be related to the type of self-consciousness that comes up in philosophy, but could you give us that connection? 
Yeah, so the core kind of case of self-consciousness, as I think of it, as coming up in philosophy, has to do with cases in which what you know is is something about your own mind. So I think of self-consciousness as a particular way of knowing your own mental states. And so the basic idea here is one that I originally just picked up from Sebastian Rodel, who in his book Self-Consciousness introduces this formulation, which is occasionally used by other philosophers, but he says about things like knowing that you're in pain, the way that you know that you're in pain is just by being in pain. Uh, And this is very different from other kinds of knowledge. So if you think about perceptual knowledge, you know, if there's like a cat on the couch and you ask me how I know there's a cat on the couch, I'll say, oh, I, I can see that there's a cat on the couch. That's how I know. And we're sort of familiar with that kind of answer. You know, if someone asks you how you know something, you can say, I saw it, or, you know, so-and-so told me. And we have these ways of knowing, as they're sometimes called, perception, testimony, inference. And I think what Rodel is suggesting is that there's another one of these ways of knowing, self-consciousness, which is this kind of initially really funny-looking capacity to know that you're in a state by being in it. So you know that you're in pain by being in pain. So how is the pain case different from seeing the cat case? Aren't they both just cases of sensation? I look at the cat, I have a visual experience, I sense the light with my retinas. And similarly, if I have a pain, maybe I sense the feeling in my leg that it's in pain. So aren't those just the same? I think maybe the fundamental way of distinguishing here is in terms of the nature of what it is that you know. So one thing about perceptual knowledge is that the thing that you know is an object in the world. Uh, And it's a thing that can be known in the same kind of way, perceptually, by other people. So there's like a fact of the matter about where the cat is in space. But like, how do I find the analog of that with the pain in my leg? Yeah, well, I wouldn't want to deny that the pain is objective. The thought is it's a different kind of thing. And, you know, the thing about mental states is that the only person who can know them in this particular way by self-consciousness or, or by being in them, is the person who has them. In a way, like, given the formulation, this is trivial. Like, you can only know that you're in a state by being in it if you're in it. And only I can be in my mental states, so only I can know that I'm in them by being in them. The thought, the initial thought is there's just a difference. So in the case of self-consciousness, what you know is a mental state. In the case of perception, what you know is a physical object. Okay, and I think that's fairly intuitive because... If we take a step back and look at what we said, I know that there's a cat on the couch versus I know there's a pain in my leg. Well, the second claim has the word my in it, i.e. the word I in it, whereas the thing about the cat on the couch, that's just that's a claim about some cat on some couch somewhere. You know, the word I doesn't play into it at any point. Maybe that's connected to what you were just saying. Yeah, and so it's, it does seem like self-consciousness then is the knowledge you gain in this way is necessarily self-knowledge. I can't know your mental states in this way. So let's talk about this idea that you know that you're in pain by being in pain. What's the motivation for that idea? It sounds like there's a record skipping or something. Yeah, so I think the fundamental motivation is just that if we're going to allow ourselves to talk about knowledge of our own mental states, knowledge of pain in this way, there has to be an answer to the question, how you know. And so the formula is kind of identifying that. And it's true that it is initially a puzzling thing to say. It's sort of, it sounds like you're just repeating yourself. But I think it's worth here, like, pausing and really thinking about 
what would happen if this came up in an ordinary conversation? So you tell me that your leg hurts, and I ask you, and this is something sort of perverse about this, but suppose I did ask you, how do you know that your leg is in pain? What do you say? Uh, what the hell are you talking about, maybe? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I think the the way that I like to think about this is that it would not be unreasonable if someone were to respond to that kind of question by like looking at you completely incredulously and saying, because I'm in pain. And this is a kind of reminder of how this works. But the suggestion is something like, look, you're a human being too. You know what it's like to be in pain. You've been in pain. And so you know that when you're in pain, you're in a position to know that you are. Okay, so I know that I'm in pain by being in pain. That kind of sounds like if I'm in pain, then I automatically, no matter what, know that I'm in pain. And then that in turn sounds like I can't be mistaken about whether I'm in pain. Uh, Is that right? Can I be wrong about whether I'm in pain? It seems kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, I now think that you can. There was a there was a time in my life when I I sort of thought you couldn't. And there are you know philosophers who have tried to defend this kind of view. Wittgenstein is maybe an example. He in fact says in one place that it sort of doesn't make sense to say of someone that they know that they're in pain, except maybe as a joke. I've never quite understood what the joke is supposed to be, but anyway. But I was pressed on this at, at some point, and the kind of example that I think is particularly persuasive are these kinds of cases where, you know, the pain isn't very severe and you're, you know, maybe involved in doing something and you suddenly realize that you've been in pain for a while and you can kind of, I think in the best kind of case like this, you can actually think back to the experiences you were having moments ago and remember being in pain, even though you didn't notice it at the time. Yeah, so maybe something like an ache that's very slowly sets in such that when it starts, it's so faint, you you never notice it. But you're more likely to notice like sudden pains. So if it really ramps up really, really slowly, like over four hours, maybe eventually at the end of it, it's a very strong pain, but because it built up so gradually, you never notice it happening. Or would that be an example? Yeah, I think so. And then there are also other cases that are a little bit harder to know exactly what's going on. So... One thing that I think most people have noticed is that if you're like in the process of like building something and you're really focused on it, you'll often not notice that you injure yourself. And so you get done with it and you're like, I have cuts all over my hands. Like I'm bleeding profusely. (laughs) I didn't notice this. Now it is, I think, kind of tempting to say, well, yeah, it's true. You cut yourself. No one's denying that. But if you didn't notice that you were in pain, you're not really in pain. There's a question about what exactly would motivate this, especially given these other kinds of cases where it seems like if you have this kind of pain that ramps up really slowly, there's a first moment at which you notice it. But to try to defend the view philosophically that like you somehow weren't in pain until you noticed it, in that kind of case, seems really unmotivated. And so it just seems like better overall to say, no, you sometimes you're in pain and you don't know it. So what about a case where you think that you're in pain when you're actually not in pain? So an example that you give in your paper is you feel like you're in pain, but then you actually realize that it was just an itch. Would that have a different explanation? Yeah, so I think that this is 
the two things work differently. So I actually described self-consciousness before as a capacity to know that you're in, in pain, for example, by being in pain. And so there are kind of two different things that can happen here, and each of them will explain one of these two phenomena. So on the one hand, because it's a capacity, you can sort of have the capacity without having exercised it. And so this is you know, why I said when you're in a mental state, that might put you in a position to know that you are, if you're self-conscious. But being in a position to know something and actually knowing it are different things. So this is like whenever you're you know, sitting in a room, there are all kinds of things you're in a position to know that you just don't notice. So like I just now noticed that there are you know, two Ethernet ports on the wall over there. It's been in my field of vision for the entire time. I just haven't registered that in the right way. Um, and so I think the case where you're in pain but don't know it is going to work like that. So you're in a position to know that you're in pain whenever you're in pain, but you somehow have to focus your attention on it however that happens. The other kind of case is one where you do sort of exercise the capacity, but the exercise of it is, you know, defective. Things go badly. And so this is going to be the kind of case where you can mistake an itch for a pain or vice versa. And there are cases where they're not so different. Yeah, I did just scratch myself, (laughs) interestingly. (laughs) Uh, I would say that it was an itch, but, you know, who knows? Maybe, (laughs) Maybe I get bit by something. David Finkelstein has an example along these lines that I really like as well. So imagine you're really afraid of needles and then you go to the doctor and the doctor walks over to you. They're like, you know, I got to give you this vaccination. You're like, oh, gosh, I'm really scared of needles. And then uh, they're about to do it. And then you jump up and yelp. And then the doctor is like, what are you yelping about? I haven't even stuck you yet with a needle. So it seems like maybe there you thought that you were experiencing the pokey pain of a needle, but actually you're just afraid of it and you kind of anticipated it. So you got that wrong. Yeah, that's a great case. And in a way, like the example I was thinking of where you mistake an itch for a pain is sort of like a perceptual illusion where, you know, there is something there, but you misidentify it. This kind of case of Finkelstein's is one where it's more like a hallucination. Like plausibly in that case, there's no sensation that you mistake for a pain. Instead, you, you sort of hallucinate the sensation out of fear. One other interesting thing about the kind of Finkelstein's kind of case, I think, is that On the view I was just sort of defending, I guess, uh, there's no actual pain. And so there's an interesting ethical question about how to think about, you know, how should you behave towards someone who thinks that they're in pain when they're not? I mean, if this view is right, then it's perfectly coherent for there to be someone who actually, you know, they don't have any pain, but they think that they have chronic pain, like all the time, and this deeply affects their life. One view that you might take is you might say, they're not in pain, (laughs) and so we don't have to, like, have any sympathy for them. And I think for a lot of people, this is going to be a kind of tempting view. I would sort of like to think that it's open to us to say, like, look, you should have sympathy for someone who is subject to these kinds of, like, hallucinations of being in pain that arise from some kind of strange defect of self-consciousness. Um, maybe you don't need to be sympathetic in quite the same way. Certainly, you know, the treatment of it might be different. They need, you know, not painkillers, but therapy or something. But it seems to demand, in a way, like, the same kind of personal ethical attention as actual pain does. Let's think about some other examples. So uh, the interview goes really badly. Um, You make me angry. Do I know that I'm angry by being angry? Typically, I think, I mean, anger is going to be complicated. Things like 
belief are sort of maybe even trickier. And one of the differences is that, you know, you start with a case like pain, there's something that it feels like to be in pain. And so when you think about what it means to know that you're in that kind of state by being in it, you can sort of see, well, okay, it's kind of like perception in the sense that there's, you know, there's something it's like to be in the state and it's maybe on the basis of that feeling, that sensation that I, that I come to know. Whereas in the case even of certain kinds of anger and then especially of belief, it doesn't necessarily involve that same kind of feeling. Um, and so there are cases of anger that are a lot like the pain case where, you know, anger comes along with these certain sorts of sensations and it's maybe partly on the basis of those plus probably also certain features of the context that allow you to come to know that you're in that state. In other kinds of cases, it does seem like you can still know in this way that you're angry, even if the anger doesn't really feel in the, like, what we think of as the characteristic angry way. And then, you know, with states like belief, again, like, there's nothing it feels like to have a belief, I don't think. Um, Or at least if it does, it seems like kind of a special case. And so there it's even less clear what is, like, the kind of ground of the exercise of this capacity, So are we saying that self-consciousness and self-knowledge are the same thing? Or do we sort of get self-consciousness from self-knowledge? Or how do those two things relate? Yeah, good. This is important. As far as I can see, self-consciousness is always going to be a kind of self-knowledge. And as I'm thinking about it, it ended up being knowledge of your own mental states. But I think not all self-knowledge is acquired via self-consciousness. So I think you can come to know things about yourself by sort of basing them on what other people tell you about yourself. And this can be a really important source of self-knowledge. And so as as I think about this, self-knowledge extends way beyond just what you get from self-consciousness. It seems like we're gravitating towards saying that there's a significant connection between being in a mental state, like being angry or having a belief, and self-consciousness. So maybe part of having the mental state is being self-conscious about it, or maybe part of having the mental state is that you could be self-conscious about it or something on those lines. Is that right? Yeah, so the the way I think I've been thinking about this increasingly is that it is a sort of essential feature of what a mental state is, that it can be known in this sort of peculiar way. So for a state to be a mental state is for it to be a state that you can know that you're in by being in it. And this points to like an interesting thing to do with the kind of bodily knowledge we were talking about earlier. Earlier, we were talking a bit about this ordinary sense of self-consciousness where we ended up talking a lot about your consciousness of your body. And I think there's some reason actually to distinguish the knowledge that you have of your own mental states from the knowledge that you have of your bodily states. The normal word for the capacity to know about your bodily states is proprioception. I think maybe this refers specifically to like knowledge of the position of your limbs. So I'd be tempted to maybe generalize this and say like there's a special way of knowing about the the states of your body where this would probably include maybe it includes things like hunger a little bit. Having to go to the bathroom yeah that's even more clearly non-mental. Hunger is a weird in-between case. I'd never thought about this before. I don't know what to say about hunger. Um, But yeah, so we might distinguish these two different ways of knowing. 
I don't know what the formula would be for the case of knowledge of your body, but then you get these what seem to be like necessary connections between the way of knowing and the objects known, so that it's somehow a necessary truth about mental states that a mental state is a kind of state that is knowable via self-consciousness. And I think that this applies even to animals that aren't self-conscious, that like if they're in mental states, they're in states that they could know via self-consciousness if they were self-conscious. These are hard wow. claims to, to test, spicy. but okay. I sort of think they're true. <laughs> and then the idea would be, in, in the case of the body, that there's a necessary connection between a bodily state and this particular way of knowing, however exactly we think about it. I've really not thought much about this and don't have a particular view on it. But it does, it has sort of surprising consequences that I think are worth thinking through that certain things that are like part of our biological organism won't be like strictly speaking parts of our bodies because we don't know them in that kind of way. So, you know, this would probably apply to things like, you know, if you think about when you're moving your hands, you're doing things like contracting particular muscle fibers. That's not the kind of thing that you can know in this way. And so on this way of thinking of it, there's a sense in which the muscle fibers are not part of your body. So, agree, this is a crazy sounding thing to say, hmm. but on this way of thinking about it, it becomes like kind of tempting. And if, to go back to the mental case, I think there's some payoff here for thinking about how a lot of this philosophical work in the philosophy of mind, and maybe especially the stuff that draws a lot on self-consciousness, how that relates to psychology. Because just as you have these like sub-bodily things going on, there are also going to be what we might call sub-mental things. Like the some of the mental processes that psychologists study, maybe. Certainly the neural processes that neuroscientists study. These are not, I think, in the proper sense, part of the mind. And the psychology case is difficult. So I don't want to, you know, commit myself to anything in particular there, but the neural processes, I think, you know, that's not a mental process. It stands in a different kind of relation to it. And so we then have as a way of carving this stuff up where we have a way of delineating the mental from the non-mental, or as it sometimes put, the personal level from the sub-personal level, where the division is that something is mental, personal in this kind of sense, just if it's the kind of thing that you can know self via self-consciousness. So the subpersonal stuff would be intuitively whatever my cognitive system is doing automatically that I'm not necessarily aware of and that I maybe even kind of couldn't make myself aware of. And the personal part of what the cognitive system is doing is the things that I can be aware of. Yeah. And it seems like you're also splitting it up. So there's this level of the things that we can never be aware of, level of mental states that we could be aware of if we attended to them, and then another level of things that we are aware of. Yeah. And you're calling those last two levels mental states, one conscious, one not conscious? Yeah, so this is a good question about the conscious, not conscious stuff. I think that this is a really complicated area that people like are not careful enough about, it seems to me. So I actually got puzzled recently about what exactly it was, like what do philosophers mean by conscious? And so I looked this up in like my Cambridge Dictionary of Philosophy or something, and the kind of standard de definition is that a conscious state is a state that you are aware of being in. 
And I thought to myself, no, that sounds like a self-conscious state. Like, just explicitly, that's basically how I would define a self-conscious state. It's a state that you know that you're in. So it seems like there are all kinds of philosophers of mind going around just running consciousness and self-consciousness together. And I don't really know what that's about exactly. I would say there's the conscious states, which are the ones that are such that you could, in principle, know that you are in them via self-consciousness, by being in them. And the self-conscious ones are the ones that you actually know that you're in in that way. So like the example you had earlier of you know, if it had popped out at you, you might have noticed that there were two Ethernet ports in the wall, but it didn't jump out at you. You didn't notice it, but it could have. So before it jumped out at you that there were two Ethernet ports in the wall, that was maybe something that you experienced consciously but not yet self-consciously. Yeah, that's the idea. There are, though, there are sort of more complicated cases where you're in a state that is of a kind that you could know that you're in via self-consciousness. I think anger is kind of the, like, stock example of this kind of thing where, like, you know, you're deeply angry at your mother in some sense that's not available to you except through therapy. We want to say that this is a mental state, I think, pretty clearly. But some of the things I just said seem to suggest that now it's not if there's some kind of blockage uh, that keeps you from knowing about it via self-consciousness or first personally, as people sometimes put it. Um, and Tudy would say subconsciously you harbor these feelings or something like that. Yeah, and so it's tempting now to introduce these other kinds of words and say it's subconscious or I kind of prefer unconscious as the word for this kind of thing. Although I think there are questions about whether that fits with what Freud was doing exactly. So maybe subconscious is ultimately the better thing to say here. But this is a special kind of case where the mental state is of the right kind to become self-conscious, but there's a kind of contingent block to that particular state in these circumstances. Like, in a way, it's a conscious state, but it's a conscious state that for certain complicated reasons you can't right now know that you're in. But here, again, like in principle... You can know that you're in it via self-consciousness. You just have to remove the block. And then the thing that was off in the background that you didn't notice at first, we don't want to call that subconscious because there was nothing blocking you from noticing it. You just didn't happen to notice it at that exact moment. Yeah, exactly. So I guess mental states that are only accessible through self-knowledge that someone else offers you, those are special and different from subpersonal cases because you can actually fit that knowledge into your self-consciousness in a way that is special and different from subpersonal things that you learn about yourself. So if you learn that when you play the piano that your muscles are moving in a certain way, that's not going to fit into your self-consciousness in the same way that if you learn that you're angry at your mother, that will fit in. Yeah, that all seems right. The piano example is interesting in a way because I think what seems clear is that even if you learn all of the relevant science about how the muscles work, like now you might not have all this knowledge about exactly which muscle fibers you're moving in which way at what time, but you know that not via self-consciousness, as I keep putting it, but instead you know that by like knowing where your fingers are and inferring from that based on all of this scientific knowledge you have, how the muscles must be moving... And it seems like the individual features of the muscle fibers are just inaccessible to us. I think an even clearer example is if you learn basic neuroscience, then you know that when you're reasoning about something that like your frontal lobe is activated, but even knowing that can't really fit into your self-consciousness at all. Yeah. So 
that's I mean, even less accessible. Neuroscience would be a lot easier if we could know these kinds of things yeah. via self-consciousness because then it's just, if you just pay enough attention, you would know exactly which neurons were firing in exactly which way when you were performing a mental state and then, you know, we wouldn't even need all of the technologies to study the neurons. We'd be our own fMRIs. Well, <laughs> yeah, of course, except for the part where we would somehow have to check the validity of our self-conscious judgments. So you actually would still need all of the neuroscientific machinery in the end. So we've considered a bunch of different examples of mental states that you know that you're in by being in them, including anger, maybe belief. We kind of you know went quickly over belief. Maybe belief, being in pain. Another mental state that philosophers are always yapping about is, of course, knowledge. So does the same thing apply to knowledge? Can you know that you know something by knowing it? Yeah, so my this is actually really important to my view. And in a way, an interesting thing about this is that among the philosophers who who I find like really helpful as inspiration in these kinds of things, like Sebastian Rodel, who I mentioned before, the case of knowledge is a really important one. So in a way, the whole point of this was to try to figure out how it is that we can have self-conscious knowledge, knowledge of our own knowledge, um, and this was something that philosophers like Kant and Hegel especially worried a lot about. There is, of course, something, I mean, if it's puzzling to say that you know that you're in pain by being in pain, it's like even more puzzling to say that you know that you know by knowing. This just sounds like it can't possibly go anywhere. Okay, And I think in a way, I sort of end up agreeing with that. So on the the view that I end up taking, the really fundamental things here are going to be particular mental acts of coming to know. So the core case that I've written the most about at this point is, is inference. And so if you think about a case of coming to know something on the basis of other things you already know, inferring, that's going to be the core case for me. And so what, what I want to make sense of is the idea of a self-conscious inference or perceiving self-consciously. Um, but we can sort of stick to the inference case. And so the idea then is you're going to if this is right, you will know that you have acquired inferential knowledge by inferring, acquiring knowledge in doing so and in knowing that you did. Now, I think that there are kind of like obstacles of sheer uncomprehension <laughs> surrounding some of this. Uh, and I'm, it's hard to know exactly what to say about those, so I'll kind of skip over that. But there are kind of more like widely talked about, almost technical issues here which have to do with a potential for a really problematic kind of regress that you get if you start allowing knowledge of knowledge. And so historically one of the things that's come up in this area is that it often looks like it's actually a requirement on knowledge itself that you know that you have it. Um, And I think this is fundamentally motivated by the thought that if you sort of make a claim and I ask you how you know it and you can't give me any answer that's evidence that you don't even know it. And yet it seems like to give the answer, you have to not only know, but you also have to know that you know. And you have to know how you know. You know, So if I say, how do you know that there's a cat on the couch? And you say, I saw a cat on the couch. That does seem to imply that you know that you saw a cat on the couch. And that you, in the best kind of case, you must know that there, you really did see a cat on the couch and you came to know that there is one there. But the worry is that if you say that in order to know something, you have to know that you know it, then it looks like you get this regress because you just apply the principle over and over again 
And it turns out that in order to know that you know something, you have to know that you know that you know it. And now in order to know anything, you have to know an infinite number of things. Okay, I think that Sebastian Rodel has a kind of clever response to this. Uh, so what he does in his book Self-Consciousness is he just distinguishes two different kinds of knowledge. Um, and so he says what happens is that you, you know, you, when you know something perceptually, uh, you that's one kind of knowledge. He calls it receptive knowledge. When you know that you know something perceptually, you know that in this other way. He calls it spontaneous knowledge. And so then the idea is, you know, when you know that you know something, you have two different kinds of knowledge involved there. And then the principle won't iterate. So we say, what, if you know that some fact is true, then you have to know in this other way that you know it, but we never said that you have to know in the second way uh, that you know in that way that you know something in order to know. Okay, all of that's obviously messy, but hopefully. So you're saying that you can't sort of have multiple iterations of spontaneous knowledge. So you can't sort of build on that so there's no regress there. That sort of ends right at yeah. that one. Okay. There's just like two of them, right? Two knowings. You, yeah, you so know that you're angry and you know that you know that you're angry in this second kind of way, and then that's that. There's no third knowing. Yeah. So I think the clearest way to put it, it's easier if you write this all down, of course, but the principle is if you know something receptively, then you know spontaneously that you know it. And that principle, fortunately, doesn't apply to itself like the original one did. So that's all well and good. The problem is uh, even if we understand this principle in this way, I think it's still false. Because I think for reasons we were talking about with even with pain, I think, you know, just as you can be in pain without knowing that you're in pain, although you're in a position to, you can know something without knowing that you know it, although you're in a position to. Or you can infer something without knowing that you inferred it, even though you were in a position to when you performed the inference. And maybe you still are if you can remember, sort of bring the inference to mind again. So I, I want to reject this kind of idea that if you know something, you have to know that you know it, because I think there are pretty clear cases where you, you don't. You know something without knowing that you know it. Does the second kind of knowing have to be also in that third level like of the self-conscious, or can it be sort of that you know it subconsciously, but you aren't really attending to that knowledge? So if someone asks you, then you can tap into it, but you don't necessarily have it in your self-conscious it seems like you disagree with that, but... Well, I don't think I would want to think of it as being like subconscious or unconscious. But I think it's right that you know there are all kinds of things that... If you ask me the right question, I sort of realized that I knew these things all along in certain kinds of ways. So like an interesting example of this that happened to me recently is I was talking to some people who were... They were talking about their children playing piano... And um, neither of them were native English speakers, so they were, you know, sort of talking about the German word for a grand piano and trying to get me to come up with it, and I didn't know the German word. So one of them was describing these two kinds of pianos, and so he was like, you know, there's the ones where the strings are vertical, and there are the other ones where the strings are horizontal, so those ones. And I thought, oh, it's a grand piano. But I had never reflected on the fact that the distinctive feature of grand pianos is that the strings are vertical, but of course, I was in a position to know this for like many, many years. And I know how I know it, which is like I've seen grand pianos. I maybe can 
remember particular ones, but I'm not even sure about that. But I know what they look like generally, and I can use that to gain this new knowledge about them. And so, in fact, if you'd asked me, what's distinctive about a grand piano, I might have been able to figure it out. But that doesn't seem to involve any, like, self-consciousness. Like, I didn't self-consciously know this all in the past. That makes sense. Nick Kozalik, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks for having me again. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. 